This is a Federal News Network podcast. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has led to widespread concerns about accompanying cyber attacks. Now Congress is moving forward with major cybersecurity legislation, including new requirements for agencies. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And I guess the first question is, can you tell when their cyber attacks are up since Russia is constantly attacking everything anyway, even when they're not invading and killing things and wrecking people? Right. I think that cyber attacks have been a concern for a long time with Russia. But certainly with the invasion of Ukraine, there has been concern that there would be blowback for the sanctions that the United States and the West are putting on Russia. So far, we haven't seen anything major, but still Congress has just passed a big piece of legislation. It's called the Strengthening American Cybersecurity Act. They passed it unanimous. The Senate passed it unanimously last week, and it actually contains three separate pieces of legislation. One would require critical infrastructure operators to report cyber attacks to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency within 72 hours. Similar legislation nearly made it into last year's defense authorization bill, but didn't quite make it there. Another piece of legislation would modernize federal cyber standards through the Federal Information Modernization Act of 2022. And a third would actually authorize the FedRAMP program in legislation for the first time. So a big cyber vehicle that got over the finish line, it seems, because of this Russia invasion. Here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Cyber warfare is truly one of the dark arts specialized by Putin and his authoritarian regime. And this bill will help protect us from Putin's attempted cyber attacks against our country. And does this have a companion in the House? Well, that's where it gets complicated, but there is widespread support in the House for these pieces of legislation. The House Homeland Security Committee passed the cyber incident reporting requirements actually last year before they were left out of the NDAA. So you'd look to New York Democrat Yvette Clark and New York Republican John Katko on that committee to lead that effort this year. On FISMA reform and the cloud legislation, that's going to come out of the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. And the committee actually passed a a nearly identical FISMA modernization bill last month. One key difference, the House bill would codify the federal chief information security officer's role. The Senate bill doesn't contain any such provision. But lawmakers on both sides, both chambers, have said that they're going to work together to get these bills across the finish line. Is there anything in the act that would provide countermeasures to shoot back in a cyber sense at Russia? I mean, it's great that they're putting all these burdens on industry to report cyber attacks. That's kind of been in the place for decades now. But is there anything in the bill to say, well, U.S. Cyber Command can zap the servers of anything originating in Russia if they so desire, fire at will? Or am I just dreaming here? Well, that's something that would certainly come through the Armed Services Committee, which oversees Cybercom. And I think you've seen Cybercom come out with a defend forward strategy, as they put it, by actually going after cyber attackers where they are operating from rather than just defending the cyber attacks that are coming in to companies and organizations here in the United States. So nothing in this bill that gets after offensive cyber, but I think Congress has been keenly interested in seeing Cybercom really up their game in recent years there. Well, then the bill that is pending now and that you say has the support in the House, what would it mean in a practical sense for agencies and contractors? Well, the incident reporting requirements have gotten a lot of 
press from the critical infrastructure perspective because these are largely private companies that would have to report to the government. But actually, agencies would also be required to report cyber attacks to CISA under this bill. That's not necessarily always happening today. And contractors would have to report cyber attacks to their awarding agency. And that is not something that is a requirement across the board for federal contractors yet. And then, of course, the FISMA modernization bill includes a whole range of new cyber standards for agencies. It would require agency progress reports on implementing zero trust security, which is a big push that the administration is, has recently come out with on a zero trust security strategy. It would push agencies to increase the use of automation to improve federal cybersecurity and visibility. And it would actually reduce FISMA reporting requirements by shifting independent assessments for agencies to once every two years rather than annually. CISA's role would also increase. They would be required to actually perform risk assessments of agencies. So CISA would take a much broader role here in overseeing federal civilian executive branch cybersecurity. And what about FedRAMP? You said that would be something in law. I mean, kind of surprising that it's not. When you think about it, I guess nobody realized because it has been an ongoing program and ongoing development with different generations, FedRAMP for, what, a dozen years now or so, or at least a decade. Right. Yeah, since 2011, uh, the General Services Administration has been running that program to authorize cloud service providers to work with government agencies. And, and the bill actually includes an interesting stat that at the end of FY21, there were 239 cloud providers with FedRAMP authorizations and those authorizations have been reused more than 2,700 times across agencies. So a lot of cloud adoption going on, obviously, as we've heard. Industry is pushing for the FedRAMP process to be faster, though, to get authorizations through more easily and to have authorizations reused across agencies. It's a process called reciprocity. So another thing this bill would do is create a federal secure cloud advisory committee which would have industry representation to kind of increase that collaboration on policy. So just to clarify, then, the new secure cloud bill is part of the larger bill that is putting a lot of things in code, in law, that is, that sense of code, for cyber across the government. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's, it's one of the pieces of this big Strengthening American Cybersecurity Act that just passed the Senate. And on the House side, you'd look for a companion bill to come out of the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. And it'll be interesting to see how these different pieces that have come together in the Senate now come together in the House and how fast they can move on that front. If you look at this bill, then basically it is just simply putting into statute practices and structures that have been in place for a long time. There is already a zero trust frenzy really going on in the government as a result of the executive orders coming from the Biden administration now for more than a year, about a year ago. And then you've got the FedRAMP and the reporting mechanisms with CISA. So it sounds like simply statutory, putting into statute that which the government was already pursuing. Fair way to summarize it? I think so. I think you're seeing Congress kind of catch up here and say, we want to see some reporting on all these different new cybersecurity initiatives that have been undertaken over the past year, as you mentioned, zero trust security and, and other issues. And I don't want to understate the significance, though, of passing this incident reporting requirements, this would apply across critical infrastructure sectors and, as I said, across agencies and government contractors. And that is a significant requirement in a cybersecurity space that typically kind of comes with voluntary coordination, not requirements like that. 
what do they say? Statutes give backbone to policies. I just said that. Yeah, I think that's I think anyone would agree with that in this space for sure. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, 
you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.